You know, one of the things, as we look at these passages this morning, one of the things that uh, I love about this group is that this group is a, a denominationally diverse group. I know we're from a lot of different churches. Um, so, for instance, I know we've got uh, a lot of Baptists here, right? If you're, if you're in a Baptist church right now, you want to raise your hand. Any Baptists? Okay, good. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to you because uh, I grew up Baptist. We'll get back to that. Presbyterians, there's a lot of Presbyterians, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about any Episcopalians in here? All right, a few Episcopalians. How about any of you from like an independent kind of fellowship, kind of Bible church? Any of those? Yeah, several of those. Okay, we could go on and on. There's probably a few others represented here. Um, I grew up uh, Baptist. All right, now so I'm going to ask this question because they say that Baptists make the best Presbyterians. Um, how many of you ever, ever in your life we're pretty much in a Baptist church, ever. Yeah, see, now all this is huge. Thank, most of us came to know Christ thanks to the, to the Baptist, right? I remember growing up, I grew up in Baptist, this, this Baptist church, big Baptist church, Clearwater, Florida, right before you go over to the causeway to Clearwater Beach. That's the church I grew up in, and uh, definitely proud of being a Baptist. And uh, I ended up at Covenant College, which is a, a Presbyterian college, and uh, before that, and I never thought I'd end up there, because growing up in Florida, in that Baptist church, I didn't know any Bible-believing Presbyterians. I didn't, I didn't know any. I knew some liberal Presbyterians, but I, I, I had no knowledge of any Bible-believing Presbyterians. And uh, when I was at this Baptist church, you know, what, what we did as Baptists, those of you who are Baptists know this, if we're going to make fun of another nomination or kind of pick on one, we're going to probably pick on the Roman Catholics. That's, that's, and I just thought that's what, that's what all Protestants did, right? And I went to Covenant College, uh, and a long story behind that. But I thought when I got there, um, I thought, well, you know, well, in my Bible classes, we'll probably just, you know, we're Protestants, we'll pick on Roman Catholics. Well, I got there, and they, they picked on Presbyterians. I mean, excuse me, they picked on the Presbyterians, they picked on Baptists, and they were picking on me. And I thought, you don't understand this. I mean, we're the people that sing just as I am. Like, we know all 20 verses, right? We're the, we have this huge offering called the Lottie Moon offering. I mean, there's, we give to missions like you. I mean, over all this stuff, I was thinking, why are you, why are you picking on me? And I, as I got to be around Presbyterians a little bit more and more, I realized, oh, oh, you guys really feel like you've cornered the market on theological knowledge is what's, what's happened here. You, you pretty much think um, that, that you guys have got it. And probably one of my favorite, you know, pastor jokes I've ever heard is a story of a guy who, who ends up dying, goes to heaven. He meets Peter at, uh, at the pearly gates there. And it turns out that, the, that heaven is exactly what Jesus said it was going to be. It's a giant mansion. I go to prepare a place for you. And it turns out to be this, this ridiculously huge building. And Peter says, why don't you come with me? I'll show you around the place. And they go into uh, the building, and there's this huge hallway. And, uh, and he hears a lot of noise, and they, they come to uh, these giant doors. In fact, there's all these doors open uh, right on the side. They open up the door, and it's like a stadium in there. And people are, are, are praising God, and, and they're singing just as I am. And there's like, you know, millions and millions in this room. And Peter says, yeah, this is, uh, this is the Baptist. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And they go a little bit farther down this huge hallway. Here's even more noise. And they open up another, and it's like a giant stadium again. 
And these people are praising God. They're not singing just as I am, but they've got their hands going like this and waving. And, and uh, Peter says, well, this is, uh, this is the uh, Pentecostals here. It's like, oh, that, that makes sense. And they go down a little bit further. And uh, the hallway gets a little smaller. It's a little quieter. But the room's still big. And they open up one room. And it's just kind of a quiet, polite, very well-dressed group. And uh, Peter says, this is, the, this is Episcopalians right here. It's like, oh, okay, great. And they go down. There's different rooms. They open up and see. And then he realizes as Peter's leading him that they're going down some hallways and the doors have stopped. There's no more doors. And uh, they go down a long hallway with no doors. And then they turn, turn right and they go down another long hallway with no doors. And it seems to be getting quieter and darker. And they finally get to the, the, you know, this other long hallway. And it's, at the very end, there's this door. And they get to that door. And right before Peter opens it, he turns around. He looks at this guy and says, shh, this is the Presbyterians. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> what we're seeing here in this passage that we're about to read is, a, uh, is Paul dealing with the Jewish people at the time who would have felt that in, that in connection with God, they're the only ones here. They're the only ones who really understand what's going on. And what... Uh, and what Paul has been trying to do, you've seen this in what we've done the last several weeks, Paul is trying to explain to these, uh, these uh, readers the gospel, and the gospel is understood, first of all, in how we are judged, how we are condemned, why we need a Savior. And he started in chapter 1, verses 18 through 29, talking about, 18 through 32, talking about how the pagan man is condemned. The one who's the atheist, who says there is no God, is condemned, and he shows why he's condemned. And then last week, Barton talked in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, how the moral man, the one who says, well, no, I've got, I, I've got some good behavior. I'm a pretty good guy. And, and Paul says, no, let me tell you why this person is judged and condemned. And then today, as we read these verses in, second, uh, in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8, we're going to see how the religious man, and particularly in this case, the Jewish man. But for our sakes, and for our understanding, as we understand what Paul was saying to the Jews at this time, those who would have said, hey, we understand why the pagans condemned. And we understand why that guy who thinks he's a pretty good guy is condemned. But we're Jewish. So we have a connection to God that they don't. I would say as we understand that, we also want to apply it to our own lives and understand that that. that that being in a church, whatever the denomination, is not, does not guarantee us anything, does not, does not allow us some sliver, sliver of goodness. And Paul's going to want to bring that out and help us understand how it is that oftentimes we rely on that. Even, even as we understand the gospel, we slip into moments in our days and actions and, and beliefs and thoughts and patterns and the way we react to each other that causes us to, to rely just a little bit on the fact that, yeah, well, I mean, I understand why that guy, that guy's not saved, but, you know, there, I've done some good things, and, and, you know, I'm here at Amen. And Paul has something to say to us in these verses in regards to the gospel. So reading Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, Paul writes this, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, 
an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For for circumcision indeed is of value, but if you obey the law, excuse me, if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what value is of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how can God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Let's pray quickly as we open up God's word. Father, as we look at these things, we do want to understand what Paul meant as he wrote these to these Roman Christians, to the Roman church, what he meant as he talked about those who were Jews at that time. And Lord, we want in understanding that, for you to apply it to our hearts and our minds, that we might grasp better this gospel, this beautiful gospel you have given us. Father, we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Three main points, and the first one we see in verses 17 through 24, that our religious knowledge does not make us acceptable to God. Our religious knowledge does not make us acceptable to God. As a Baptist, I did find a a really great home in Presbyterianism. As I was there at Covenant College, again, I I went there to play soccer. I I thought all Presbyterians were messed up, but I thought I'll put up with them for three years and enjoy the the soccer team and the beauty of Lookout Mountain. I turned out like, wow, these guys guys believe some pretty good stuff. And as I got into it more and more, I'll tell you what happened, and it happened to me in seminary as well. It was real easy in seminary to find my security, to feel good about myself because of all the awesome stuff I was learning. You know, because I knew what infralapsarianism was. And because I could talk eloquently about different theological issues and we could sit around tables for hours and have discussions about the intricacies of some kind of Greek word. And that, that can be intoxicating. You can start to feel really spiritual and not have anything really spiritual going on in your life. And that's a temptation 
for all of us who are religious to find our security in our knowledge. I mean, we understand God's will. And Paul says, no, let me tell you, Jewish people, let me tell you, men here of amen, that your religious knowledge does not make you acceptable to God. There's not some sliver in there that makes you a little bit more acceptable than the guy who didn't show up here this morning. It's not going to be found in that. And he shows why. He says, first of all, you see in verses 17 through 21a, that we're exposed by our focus. Exposed by our focus. Look what it says in those verses. You, you see the this, this center seems to be completely upon the person. He says, you call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You boast in God. You are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. The whole focus is on us. What I know and how I know something more than the other guy knows it. How I kind of understand things spiritually and this other guy doesn't. And it's easy. It's easy for us to slip into that even day by day to think, well, yeah, I mean, I know I sin and, and but I, you know, but I did have a quiet time this morning. <laughs> You know, I did, I, I'm doing something spiritual. And I have some knowledge there. And Paul says, no, you're, you're exposed by your focus. Your focus isn't on God. Your focus is on your own knowledge. Your focus is on yourself. Also, we see in verses 21b and 22 that we're exposed by our behavior. We're exposed by our behavior. It says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What can happen for us is our knowledge becomes greater than our behavior. We're focused on our knowledge. That's what could happen to, that's what happened at times to me in seminary. I sit around for oh, two hours at lunch discussing theology, and I feel pretty good about myself, and I'm not really worried about the way I'm treating my wife. I'm not really paying attention to some of those things. I did something uh, with my daughter, I guess it was about four years ago, five years ago. She was in, she was in eighth grade. You should try this if you, have, uh, if you have any kids at home. It's a little dangerous. Um, I went uh, to her and I said, hey, listen, Ellie, I'd like you to uh, do something for me. Would you please sit down and think a little bit about what you think your dad's top five priorities in his life are? And I said to her, I said, now, now, I don't want you to write down what you think I want them to be. But you watch me and you live around. I want you to write down the five things that you see are priorities in my life based on just how I act, what I do, and all, all that. And I kept trying to explain. She's like, Dad, I got it. I got it. I'm like, okay. So about an hour later, it was a Sunday afternoon, an hour later, she comes and she hands me a piece of paper and she says, here, I did it. I'm like, okay, thank you. And I looked at the five, and thankfully, something spiritual appeared on the five. <laughs> Sadly, and honestly, it was number four. There was only one thing spiritual on that list, and it was number four out of the top five. And she nailed it. She was right. As I looked at that list, I thought, <laughs> yeah. She, she understood what I said. Hey, not, not what you want your dad's priorities to be, but what, but, or what you, want, you think dad wants them to be, but what they really are. And I looked at that list, and it hit me to the heart. I thought, I've got some work to do here. Um, I have rested a lot in knowledge, and I'm not doing 
the behaviors. I'm not acting, living these things out. Paul says here, we're exposed by our behavior. Our knowledge doesn't solve that. In verses 23 through 24, finally Paul says, you're also exposed by the world. You, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. And that's a reference probably to Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 36, probably taken from both places. And it has to do with the fact that the people of God, they're in military defeat, and people are saying, How, you, you, have the, you have the God of the universe? Then why are you slaves? You have failed as a, as a nation. And the, and the way that Paul is using here is saying, well, if the, if the Jewish people fail morally, if you're failing morally, the world's looking at you and saying, you're not, you're not, you don't behave right. You're not doing this well. How can you say you have God? How can your knowledge be of value because you're failing morally? And then I see this right here. I think I shared um, last year sometimes, maybe it was last fall when I was speaking, that I have a good friend of mine who is a coach and a teacher at one of the schools around here. And, and I really want him to know Jesus. But his number one objection, and it's a hard one to overcome, is that he interacts with a lot of the kids and families who attend churches like Second Presbyterian Church and other churches represented in this room. And he will tell me, he's told me this, I watch how Christian families live and I'm not sure they're doing it any better than I am. And that's what Paul means here, exposed by the world. The world sees it and says, hey, I, <laughs> I'm not sure you're living any differently than I am. I, your knowledge, your Bible knowledge doesn't seem to be applied to your life in a way that makes it different than mine. So why would I need your Bible knowledge? And Paul says to the religious person, to us, hey, you're exposed by the world. So your knowledge is not making you acceptable to God. Well, the second thing that Paul says in verses 25 through 29 is that our religious rituals do not make us acceptable to God. Our religious rituals do not make us acceptable to God. Now, I'm so grateful that this morning in this big giant passage where circumcision and uncircumcision is said like 50,000 times that there's no women in here. I've never gotten the opportunity to speak to just men about this whole issue of circumcision, which is a crazy, I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about this. When I get to heaven, I'm going to say, God, you need to explain why that had to be the sign, you know? And how in the world did anybody convert to Judaism after like, you know, seven days old, like <laughs> back in the Old Testament, if they had come to you, like, hey, you got to convert, oh well, yeah, I want to I be a Jew, and here's what you have to do, I'd be like, oh, no, no, <laughs> no, I, I think I'll, I'll just watch from afar, you know, I don't, <laughs> well, what's going on here, well, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole nother lesson in here that's pretty powerful, even when you think about, um, how important our sexuality is to God. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole other lesson there. But, that, but the idea here is that you're marked for God. This was the mark of the Old Testament covenant. And God's people were marked for God. It set them apart. And it, and it really was a, a foreshadowing of what takes place at the cross. We learn in Colossians chapter 1 that uh, that. 
Christ was cut off for our sake. He was cut off from humanity. There was a, there, so there's all these, there's all these uh, connections to the covenant and to circumcision that are, that are flowing from this. Well, the Jewish people would have said, we have the mark of the covenant. Not only do we have the knowledge, but we have the mark of the covenant. Like, we've been marked for God. And Paul says, no, this outward mark doesn't make you acceptable to God. And your religious rituals, he'd say to us, your religious rituals don't make you acceptable to God. And we have these, we have these marks taking place all throughout church history. You can go back centuries, and there were times when men and women marked themselves for God by going into a monastery, becoming a nun. And they would mark themselves by their dress, by their vows. They would mark themselves by going off and, and, and saying, you know what, I'm going to live in solitude for 30 years, completely by myself, so I can just focus on God. I'm going I'm to be marked for Him. And they'd, they'd want to find, in many ways, want to find their, their rightness before God by this mark. And that's continued. You can, you can look throughout history and see other marks. You remember, I guess it was in the early 90s when the big fad with the WWJD bracelets, right? And everybody's got to wear one of those. Um, now, whether or not you actually knew what Jesus did say or did, <laughs> you felt like if you had that bracelet on, it like meant something. You were marked. You know, and, I, and I, doing youth ministry in the 90s, that was a huge fad. There's tons of kids wearing these bracelets, you know? The funny part, or it wasn't really funny, was, you know, when those same people wearing that, you know, would be busted on a Friday night uh, drinking beer, you know, with their WWJD bracelet on. But hey, I'm marked for God. Uh, or you can see it, you know, in a bumper sticker, a fish bumper sticker in the back of your car. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I, have this, I have this mark. It could even be, hey, I go to Amen. I've been going to Amen for 20 years. And there's a feeling in all of us, we're, we're, we're all tempted, that somehow that makes us a little more acceptable to God. I mean, we're smart enough to know that doesn't save us. But we're still tempted to make it, that somehow this, this moves us a little bit closer than that guy. Because we're doing this. And Paul's point to us, if we're really going to grasp the grace that's going to be offered in chapter 3, is for us to understand just the depths of our depravity. And understand that, that even these, these religious rituals, these outward signs, they don't do anything for us. And he, and he says there at the last uh, verse, verses 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is is not from man, but from God. And so we see four things there in that last, very last verse. First is this. True religious practice comes from an inward faith. True religious practice comes from an inward faith. And that's what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Barton mentioned that last week when Jesus got up to preach about the law of God. You know, he said... You've heard it say, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you have hate in your heart towards your brother, you've already committed murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust after another woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. 
And you see it all throughout Jesus' teachings. He's saying, hey, it's not just your outward expression. It's not just your religious rituals. This circumcision, all of this was supposed to be a matter of an inward faith. It was supposed to be something that was, that was ground deep inside you. Second thing he says about our religious rituals, not only are they a part of an inward faith, but that true religious practice must be of the heart. He says circumcision is a matter of the heart. Over and over again, Jesus was saying to people, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus? He asks the right question of the right person. He comes to Jesus, the Son of God, and he asks, asks the correct question. What do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, we need to keep all the commandments. And the guy says, I've done that. I've got the knowledge. I've got the rituals. And Jesus says, okay, go sell all your possessions. Give them to the poor. And it says, pretty, pretty powerful statement in the Bible. The man went away sad because he had great wealth. Now the point of it was not that you got to be poor to be a Christian or that you can't own stuff to be a Christian. But Jesus was going after the man's heart. He knew as the son of God that the real idol that this man had was his wealth. His security was found in his wealth. And so Jesus went after his heart. And he said, okay, if you want to follow me, give up that security. Give up that thing which is truly your God. And the, the man walked away. It's a matter of the heart. His heart was there. He had the rituals. He had the knowledge. But Jesus is getting across the point. True religious practice must be of the heart. His heart wasn't there. The third thing that Jesus or that Paul writes in there is that true religious practice must be by the Holy Spirit. You see, Spirit is capitalized in verse 29. So that's by the Holy Spirit. You're going to see later in Romans that uh, it talks about us being dead in our sin. That, uh, um, that it's only through Christ that we're made alive. And that's the reality of the gospel. It's not that God takes some of our stuff and pulls it together and kind of starts to build something good out of it. Basically, there's nothing good in us and he's got to start from scratch. And that's the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel says, you have a heart of stone and God's going to take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's what has to take place. There has to be an exchange of your heart. Your very heart is messed up. And this can only happen by the Spirit. It's only when God makes us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. A dead person doesn't get up out of the, cac uh, uh, the casket and walk. He, there's nothing in a dead person that can, that can make themselves alive. Only God by His Spirit makes us alive. And so your religious rituals count for nothing unless they're by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, true religious practice must be for the praise of God. It can't be for man. And Paul's really bringing out, who is your audience? Why, why are you doing these things? Why do you have the quiet time? Why are you at amen? Why do you study your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you go to church? Is it for the praise of men or is it for the praise of God? 
Because if it's going to be a matter of the heart, if it's going to be true religious practice, then those things are going to come from your heart, by the Spirit. It's going to be inward. And it's going to be for the praise of God. That's going to be your only audience. That's who you're going to want to please. And it's not going to matter if anybody sees you. And that, of course, plays itself out in our, in our ethics, doesn't it? So, are we just good, upright men when people are watching us? That would be for the praise of men. Or, are we good, upright men regardless of who's watching or not watching because it's for the praise of God? True religious practice is for the praise of God. And this struck right at the Pharisees, which, who, you know, of all Jews, they were the ones who practiced it to a high level. Um, I, I love the stories in the, in the Gospels about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Um, one of them, my, one of my favorite, is when the, uh, the disciples are walking through the wheat fields on the Sabbath, and they're grabbing the grain to get something to eat. And it says that the Pharisees, the Pharisees confronted Jesus and said, you know, what are your disciples doing? Now, probably the reason the Pharisees were even there. you got to ask, why, why were the Pharisees in the field on the Sabbath? Like, what's going on with that? You know, how do they know that? Probably this is what happened. There was a Pharisaical law that said, okay, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so you can only go. They started mapping out exactly what it was. One of the things was you can only walk this many steps on the Sabbath. You walk any more than that, and then you're working. So the Pharisees, to show how religious they were, would go out walking in places where they knew they, they had more steps than they actually could take on the day. And when they get to the place where they got to the number of steps they were supposed to have for the day, they just stopped and stood there till sundown. So probably you had some Pharisees who were standing by this field waiting for sun to go down because they were so religious and that's why they saw and you think, gosh, that's ridiculous. They wanted people to see them. But isn't it too, brothers? Hasn't there been times in your life, there's been times this week when I've kind of wanted some people to see me do something spiritual. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted them to, I, I would feel good for them to go, you know, okay, Todd's doing something. I tell you, after Ellie had that list, I kind of like when she sees me having my quiet time. Maybe, the, maybe I'll move up from number four to number two or something. I, I, want, I want her to see that, not for the right reasons. It reveals my heart. And relig our religious rituals don't make us acceptable to God. In fact, we see more and more that a lot of times they expose, they expose the judgment upon us because they're not from the heart. Well, as we continue on in chapter 3, Paul has, Paul has already said to, uh, to the pagan, the guy that's an atheist, hey, listen, just because you deny God doesn't get you out of this. Because God has revealed himself to you. So you're suppressing the truth. And when you suppress the truth, you've brought judgment upon yourself. And you, the, the, guy, the good guy, the upstanding moral man, listen, you can't even live up to your own moral standards. <laughs> like the, the, your own. Forget about the law of God. You've got your own law in your head. How are you doing with that? You can't even live up to that. It condemns you. And you religious person, especially you Jews... You think you have the law of God, you have this knowledge, you have this rich, these rituals? They actually reveal in you, the law of God reveals in you just 
how uh, condemned, how sinful you actually are. That's the place we are when we pick up in chapter three, 3. And here's what's going on. In these eight verses that kind of seem confusing, you basically have Paul, and we're not sure if this is the actual questions that Paul received or questions that he anticipated from Jewish people. But basically you have here, and here's the number three, are you sure there isn't some advantage to being religious? That's number three. Are you sure there isn't some advantage to being religious? That's, that's what Paul's going to answer. You, he's got Jewish people saying, wait a second. Are you sure, Paul, there's not some advantage to me being a Jew? Are you sure that you can say that we're in the same boat as the pagan, as the atheist, as this guy who doesn't have God's law? I mean, can't you? We're at least halfway there, Paul, right? Paul's going to answer that. Four, four objections, four questions. First one in verses 1 and 2. What's the point of being in a church? Or what's the point of being religious, these religious people are saying? What's the point? If, if, if the law of God just reveals my sin, if, if my religious knowledge doesn't make me acceptable to God, my religious practice, then you're saying there's no value in being in a church? There's no value in being religious? And the answer that Paul gives is this. Well, there is some value. You do have the word of God. To begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You do have the word of God. So yeah, there is, there is a, there's a value in being religious. You've been trusted with that, so don't, don't just throw everything out. You know, the reality, people say, going to Mellow Mushroom doesn't make you a pizza, right? Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. But if you want pizza, Mellow Mushroom is a good place to go, right? If you want, if you want the word of God, you know, Going to a church is going to give you that. So there are some advantages there. Paul says you can't just, you can't just throw that out and, and, and say, I'm not saying that doesn't matter, Paul says. And then he goes on. They, they go on in their objections. And they say, well, okay, are you saying that because a few Jewish people are unfaithful, that affects God's faithfulness? Are you saying that a few people being unfaithful affect God's faithfulness? Because God is supposed to be faithful to the Jewish people. He's supposed to be faithful to God's people. We have the mark of the covenant. We have the covenant given to us. Are you saying, Paul, is your gospel, if is your gospel saying that because a few of us were unfaithful, that, uh, that God is not going to be faithful to his promise? And Paul's response is to quote Psalm 51, which is the psalm that uh, David wrote after he sinned with Bathsheba. There in verse 4 that you may be justified by your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul's saying here is, no, no. God's faithfulness is revealed even in his judgment. Because God is also a just God. He's a merciful God. He's a forgiving God, but he's also a just God. And Paul's going to pick this up later. You can't, the justice of God is core and central to the gospel. If you don't understand the right judgment that God has on your life and my life, you're not going to really be free with the grace of God. Because it's in justification, it's his understanding, no, I rightly deserve his condemnation. It is right for God to condemn me to hell. There is nothing good in me. If you can't get to that point, grace is not amazing. And we're going to see that later on in chapter 5, 
that the justice of God, that, that reveals part of his character. His character is revealed even in his judgment. His faithfulness is revealed in his judgment. And that's what Paul's answer is to this thing. Well, now the arguments are starting to get a little crazier, kind of like a, a desperate person. So the Jew has already said, what are you saying? There's, there's no point in me being a Jew. And Paul's like, no, no, no. God's going to use that because he's giving you the word of God. You, you have the word of God. Now you need to, to listen to what it says there. Well, you're saying because a few of us were unfaithful that, uh, that, that that's going to go against God's faithfulness? He's not going to be faithful? to No, no, no. Even in God's judgment, he's revealing his character to you. He's being faithful to you. And here's where it gets a little crazy in verses 5 through 7. Next question. Why does God judge me if my unrighteousness brings him glory? <laughs> we love doing some of these crazy arguments. Okay, so if... If God's justice, if, it, if, it's, uh, if it's revealed in my unrighteousness, if some people are unfaithful and then that shows God's justice and it's going to bring God's glory, then why should God bring his wrath upon me? I mean, it, it starts to get ridiculous, which is why there's that parenthesis that Paul says, I speak in human terms. He's getting a little embarrassed by these questions, but he's trying to anticipate the excuses we give for wanting to say, I deserve judgment. And he's anticipating those. And he's saying, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm righteous, if it's revealing, then why would God do this? And God says, and excuse me, Paul's answer is, all of us are judged. The world is judged, we're judged, and all of this is for God's glory. When God judges us, it brings him glory. His mercy and his grace are in the context of a right judge. The gospel is beautiful because God is just. The gospel is freeing because God is just. If you and I are holding on to a sliver of a reason of why we should be acceptable, you diminish the power and the beauty of the gospel in your lives. When you let go and say, I have nothing to offer, I am dead, you know, everything I bring, Isaiah says, even your good works are like filthy rags. And literally, in, that, in, the, in the original language, that means menstrual rags. I mean grossness. Even our good works are absolutely gross if they're trying to attain acceptability with God. And so right here it's saying, no, no, you're, you're not, you're starting to get crazy in your arguments. And the last one is even the craziest. Verse 8 so why not sin more that God might receive glory? Paul's going to pick this up again in chapter 6. And some of us in here would say, well, that, you know, that's, that's crazy. I can't believe anybody would think like that. Let me tell you all, that right there is kind of creeping into the evangelical church right now. I think in a reaction about 20 years ago, uh, we, got, we got caught up a little bit too much. In, uh, in, our, in our religious rituals. You know, we're going we're gonna to look good. And we covered up a lot of our sin, and then people who are struggling with brokenness, we kind of look down on them. Oh, you're having a divorce. Wow, you're a terrible person. Oh, you've got an addiction. Uh, oh, you're struggling with alcoholism. Uh. And as a result, we weren't really living out the gospel among ourselves. But I think we swung the pendulum in some ways too far where now we're starting to rejoice in our brokenness in a way that is not about the gospel, but about kind of letting us off the hook. And there's this whole kind of 
I wouldn't say it's a movement, but it seems close to it, that really strikes of antinomianism, which means against the law. To say, listen, if you're, try, if you're trying to be obedient to the Ten Commandments, you're not really living with grace. And that's kind of what is being said right here. Well, listen, every time I sin, God's grace is shown even more. So the honest person says, so why not sin more that God's grace might abound more? And Paul's answer here is beautiful. He just doesn't. He basically drops the mic and walks away. <laughs> he says, uh, listen to what you just said. Your condemnation is done. You're done. <laughs> you just said, well, why don't I sin more that God may receive glory? Yeah. See? <laughs> you are really messed up, <laughs> is what Paul says. That's where it's concluded. As I've thought through these passages and thought about my own life, I think to myself over and over again, we all desperately, desperately want to find something good in ourselves. We desperately want to find some sliver of reason in ourselves that make us acceptable to God. And it can even come out, even comes out in some of the things that we communicate. You know that Christmas, um, there's that song uh, about Jesus. What can I give Jesus? I can't give him this. I can't. And, and we have little kids sing this. But what can I give Jesus? I give him my heart. You know, like that's a sweet thing. Give, give, give God your heart. I remember uh, one of my professors in college, Dr. Henry Krabendam, uh, a seven-foot Dutch man, literally a seven-foot Dutch man, uh, spoke in this thick Dutch accent. And uh, he used to say this all the time to us in class. You say to the little children, give Give, give Jesus your heart. Give Jesus your heart. It's so sweet, isn't it? Give Jesus your heart. And I say, yes, give Jesus your heart so he can crush it. <laughs> and give you a new heart. <laughs> and that's exactly what's taking place here. I mean, last week, or two weeks ago, last week, this week, you got one more week of the crushing of our messed up heart. And then you're going to get to one of the greatest changes of direction ever to appear in Scripture. When God hands you a new heart. In the words of a, one of my favorite pastors, brothers, you and I, we are, we are much worse than we ever imagined. And we are more loved than you ever dreamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you even for this, uh, this, these verses that uh, speak of why we even as religious people do not escape judgment and why it's, it's not our religion, it's not our denomination, it's not our Bible knowledge, it's not our getting up at five o'clock in the morning to be at amen. It's not, it's not those things that make us acceptable to you. And yet, Father, we confess that many times during our weeks, we, we bring you these, these crumbs, these filthy rags, and say, am I not better, God? Does this not make me better? And we, we acknowledge again today that, uh, that nothing we bring to you 
has any value for our salvation. Nothing. We come to you empty-handed and we plead for your mercy and we cling to the cross. We remember again today, Father, that what has made us right is the work of Jesus and the confidence that we have to be your sons and to live as your sons today is because Jesus gave himself for us. And we have righteousness, not in and of ourselves, but we have righteousness in Jesus. And in that we're free. Father, help us to, uh, to not only believe this gospel today, but to, uh, to act like we believe it. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.